Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Dr. Norman Horn, subbing in for our good friend Doug Stewart this morning. And today we have the distinct pleasure of welcoming a new friend of mine, Dr. David Rose, who is the professor of economics at the University of Missouri, St. Louis, and a senior fellow at the Common Sense Society. He received his PhD in economics from the University of Virginia in 1987. His primary areas of interest and research are behavioral economics, political economy, and organization theory. His work has been featured and funded by a number of different institutions, such as National Institute of Mental Health, the John Templeton Foundation, which many libertarians are well aware of, and the Weldon Spring Foundation. He's currently in his third term on the U.S. Civil Rights Commission. His book, The Moral Foundation of Economic Behavior, was selected as one of Choice's Outstanding Titles of 2012. His newest book, Why Culture Matters Most, is also from Oxford University Press. He's the author of the American Civics Project at the Common Sense Society. And so this is a conversation that kind of fits into our Critical Conversations podcast series, in this particular case on ESG. And we'll get into that in just a moment. But David Rose, thank you for joining us here. Welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I am so glad that we are going to have the opportunity to have this conversation on a topic that I think is kind of growing in importance around us. And it has been growing for some time. And it's been under the radar for perhaps even longer. And that is this strange little idea of ESG or environmental social governance in corporations. And I think we need to kind of start off, if not sound the alarm, explain exactly kind of what this is. So David, let's start off by just kind of what exactly is this ESG thing? And how did it end up gaining so much traction? And why are we hearing so much about it now? Sure. ESG basically stresses investing based on environmental, social, and government, or governance, actually, factors. The environmental, of course, is pretty obvious. The firm's supposed to think about its impact on the planet, broadly construed. Social has to do with the impact that the organization has on people, its employees, its customers, its community, and society as a whole. And then governance has to do with how the organization is actually governed. For example, with Covered in a transparent way, does it share decision making with labor and so on and so forth? It is something that, in some ways, is very, very, very old. And I will argue in a minute that it is a kind of resurrection of a very old style of thinking. But ESG, as we normally think of it now, really started to percolate out of the 50s and 60s when union leaders, for the first time, realize how much money they were controlling through their pension funds and how much power this gave them. And I'm sure they used that power in ways that we might not approve of, but they also were interested in doing things like making sure that their pensions were invested in ways that might, say, support affordable housing or support health clinics and things like this. So so they just they viewed this as a thing that they could do with their pension funds, and they did it. The thing that I think really got it rolling, though, was the divest movement that you might remember that really seemed to be at fever pitch in the 80s. 
Right. It was the divest movement from apartheid in South Africa. And so for the first time, there was like really strong social pressures on firms to bend to the social will or pay a price. The first instance that I know of of ESG being used, and this is a fairly well-known thing, it's not unique to me, but the 2004 got mentioned in a uh, report that was done for the UN. So it's been around a long time. It's having increasing influence. And I think that it is a generally a very bad idea that is not going to take us where we want to go. Yeah. And then the history, I think, is pretty interesting when you kind of delve into it. One piece of that is right the idea of corporate responsibility practice. And that I think that was probably more in vogue as a term maybe 20 years ago. But this is kind of morphed into something very kind of scary from the perspective of actually doing like good business and consistent business because of the woke movement and whatnot. How did we get here exactly? What are the roots of this that we've touched on this a little? But, you know, if it goes back, you know, a hundred years, what are those roots? And what examples can we even draw out of that kind of help demonstrate problems and then ways we can think about this more comprehensively? Well, I think, you know, in the more immediate past, the way to think of this is the corporate social responsibility movement met the, we're going to use financial markets to hold you responsible to that doctrine movement. So in other words, instead of it being an internalized movement from within firms, it began to exert power from outside true investor decisions. So that's kind of a switch over from corporate social responsibility and stakeholder theory into ESG. I think the reason why it became so popular so quickly is basically a managerial moral hazard problem, which mm -hmm. is basically that people who run firms can get a whole lot of accolades for doing nice things. And that's always a good thing to get accolades for doing nice things when you can do it with other people's money. And that's yeah. basically what they're doing. So it was something that had immediate appeal to managers for that reason. But I think the deeper and more dangerous thing is it had appeal as well because when you have a multitude of objectives, which is what happens under stakeholder theory, corporate social responsibility, and then ESG being the investor's standards that holds you to that. When you have a multitude of objectives, then you basically have kind of like musical chairs of accountability. Yeah. And so when somebody says, well, what, when the, you know, the firm didn't do very well on this. Yeah, but we did this, this, and this, and this. And these are all things that we have said in our corporate charter and this and that for years are also important. Okay, yep. And then next meeting, but we didn't do so well on that. And then you pick the other things that matter and so on. And so what this does is it leads to a lack of clarity of objective that in turn leads to a lack of accountability. I mean, all of us would like to have jobs. We get paid a lot of money and get a lot of applause and really aren't held accountable for what we do. <laughs> yeah. You know, that we can fail to live up to the kind of performance that any person could reasonably expect out of us. And it's just not going to be a problem. We all like that, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's just human nature. But that ends up being a really serious problem for society as a whole. 
And the best way to see that is to go all the way back to the beginning. And that's not what we do in business ethics, which is where a lot of this stuff kind of percolated up into the consciousness of people in business and investing. The way business ethics is normally taught, I think, has fed into this problem. And I think it's taught in the wrong kind of way. And when you teach it in the right kind of way, you can then see exactly what the nature of the problem is. David, I'd like to unpack that, what you just said a little more about business ethics as the way it's taught in universities. I remember even in my course on business ethics 20 years ago, that it seemed pretty benign in the sense of like, it didn't seem insidious. It was all about, you know, if you're going to do an engineering project, you got to make sure that they're putting their trust in you to do something in the right way. You can't deceive them. You can't lie to them. All that. I mean, it seems pretty obvious and you need to do it without damaging the environment around you. It seems pretty logical. I mean, none of that seemed particularly problematic to me in this sense, but I'd like you to unpack a little more about how that's either changed or what parts of that are perhaps mistaken even. Sure. Business ethics have been around a long time. And the problem with business ethics is nobody wants to take it. Nobody wants to teach it. <laughs> and the only people who are interested in it are people who are probably not the right people to be doing it. Most business ethics courses are taught by people from philosophy departments that can't fill their classes in the philosophy department or people who want a job in university but can't get one <laughs> in a philosophy department, which, you know, is a very difficult thing to do. <laughs> Saying what nobody wants to hear. <laughs> no, well, it's, 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 just, it's just the truth. And so yeah. the natural way to approach business ethics from the point of view of someone who's a philosopher is to think of it as what's known as applied ethics. And actually, believe it or not, sure. there's a bunch of literature on applied ethics. And with applied ethics approach, you basically start with the idea of a review of the basics of moral philosophy and ethics which makes sense. If you're going to think of business ethics, it's just a special case of a broader thing called ethics. You need to figure out what ethics is to begin with. And one of the big divides in ethical theory generally is the difference between consequentialist and non-consequentialist theories of moral propriety. Now, you know, a consequentialist okay. theory just says that which is good is that which produces the best outcomes. A non-consequentialist approach argues that that which is right and morally proper is that which follows what is required by some kind of rule irrespective of the outcome. So these are like the two, basically, it's a mutually exclusive and exhaustive scheme. So if you approach it from this, you kind of have this or that, and there's really nowhere else to go in terms of categorization of ethical theory. So that's a natural way to do it. But if a consequentialist theory such as stakeholder theory or ESG is treated as defining the proper moral behavior for a firm, then what exactly is the firm supposed to do to achieve the outcomes that are sought? I mean, whose moral values and tastes are to be advanced? How will they be balanced against each other and other things like not going bankrupt? Simply saying that we need to balance all of these things is not the same thing as having an explanation for how they should be balanced. This is just kind of a muddle. And within it, it's impossible to imagine the firm, by nature, not already behaving in a way that falls short of being moral. Because there's no objective standard to invoke 
to compare the firm's behavior to and say, hey, the firm is in fact being moral. You're basically saying you need to do all this good in all these directions. And if you do that, then you're not bad. So it leads to the presumption of moral failure by firms and therefore the presumption of the need to do good in order to somehow make amends. And so that's why there's so much emphasis on doing the right thing and giving back and so on and so forth. All this positive moral action, which is, by the way, quite different than what you were describing from your earlier classes. Like, you know, right. from a more engineering kind of point of view, it's like, well, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, and then you're good. But that's not what business ethics is like normally. Now it's all about doing good, not just being good because you didn't do bad. So that's kind of the way it's normally framed. And I think that naturally brings us to a point where we believe that firms are inherently either bad or at best a necessary evil. But it doesn't have to be that way. If we start business ethics at the beginning, in other words, we don't act like we have no idea what firms do and why they do it and how it fits into society. We actually advance a theory of what firms are, what they do and how they advance the common good. If we do that, we have a very different approach to business ethics, one that would obviate a lot of the difficulties that we have with things like ESG, stakeholder theory, and corporate social responsibility. I've got more to say on that, but if you got a quick question, <laughs> now's a good time. Well, I, I do find this really interesting because I interact in business all the time. You know, my primary job is in business. I mean, engineering per se, but the purpose of the business is to make a profit by creating things that people want. And I think it's interesting to consider at least this, and maybe you can confirm or deny that this is the right way of thinking about it. But, you know, there's almost this mentality in a sense that the firm is a person that needs to do something as opposed to, you know, the firm is made up of individuals who are each individual moral actors and it is individual moral actors all behaving in such a way that we are executing moral actions properly, that then the firm would then by default ultimately be acting in a moral manner per se. Is that fair to say or is that a incomplete way of thinking about it? No, I think you're right. One might call it the personification problem. Yeah. The problem is one way to do good is to help farmers get higher prices for their milk Another way to do good is to worry about poor people being able to afford milk. Mm -hmm. So when you have positive moral action as part of what you're trying to do in any context, positive moral action requires action. Action requires resources, and that often requires making choices. Trade-offs. <laughs> That's right. And there's simply no basis for that. There's no theory of how that should be done in the context of the firm where everyone in the firm is an individual acting as some kind of moral free agent. But when they all try hard to be good, it's going to somehow be better. My point is that's not how it works. That's completely the wrong jumping off point. Years ago, I articulated what's known as the evolutionary theory of the firm, and it got a fair amount of traction. And I think it's the right place to start. Okay. Animals. Well, we start with the evolutionary theory of the firm. Basically, what becomes clear is that production that we associate with firms began with very, very simple forms of cooperation. Alone, you make 10. Alone, you make 10. Together, we make 26. 26 is bigger than 20. That difference of six is the value of cooperation, what we call the cooperative 
surplus. That's why we cooperate. And you can basically take that simple idea that is pertinent to hunter gatherers from 25,000 years ago and construct a timeline of organizational evolution whereby more and more sophisticated and complex cooperation is achieved in ever larger groups to greater effect. And this is the magic. This is where prosperity explodes from. This is it. This is the trick. Now, you don't have to know anything I just said to believe that people cooperating is preferable to people not cooperating, that cooperating is usually a pro-social, desirable thing. And so doing that, which maximizes the practical value of cooperation, is probably a good thing. So how should I cooperate? Should I cooperate with you or somebody else? Should I do this? Should I do that? Well, people will naturally seek, if they're free to do so, to cooperate in ways that benefit them the most. And the way to do that is to cooperate where your efforts produce the largest cooperative surplus. So very quickly, as long as people are free, they're going to end up trying to maximize cooperative surplus. And so organizational governance structures will evolve over time to make that more possible because that's the way you get more people to be attracted to your node of cooperation. And it's all good stuff. More and more and more cooperation means more and more and more stuff divided over the same number of people. But here's the thing. What does it mean to maximize the cooperative surplus? Well, when you maximize the value of the cooperative surplus between cooperating entities, you're basically maximizing profit. That's what profit is. But maximizing that doesn't involve any balancing. There's no such thing as maximizing a set of objectives. That's nonsense, mathematical nonsense. But it is quite possible to maximize profit and therefore maximize the practical value of cooperation within a sea of a myriad of constraints of moral, ethical, and legal behavior. And that's exactly what you described a minute ago. It's a whole bunch of things you're not supposed to do. You're supposed to operate within those guardrails. And when you do, you can check the box that says, yes, I'm ethical. But that's not how business ethics is taught. And because mm -hmm. it's taught the way I've described earlier, this idea of the social propriety and moral propriety of maximizing profit simply doesn't even exist because the idea that there should be a single objective for the firm never even pops up in the story. It's just something that firms got to do or also cease to exist. It's one of many competing objectives. That really begins to reach the heart of why ESG ends up being a problem, right? Is that when we begin to abrogate the value of increasing our surplus due to cooperation and put that into service of other things that come prior, then what's going to happen? Well, our surplus is going to go down. And, and this is, I mean, this seems to be even consistent with what we're beginning to even see in business kind of throughout the United States and really maybe perhaps more broadly throughout the world, that the more people adapt to these ESG practices, that this is even having an effect upon what business is intended to do and what its results are, right? It's yeah, it's having a profound effect. And the effect that it's having 
is understating the true social effect because this is a sea change across business culture. And so all the firms are doing it all at the same time. And as a result, we don't know what the counterfactual is where all the firms are profit maximizing at the same time. So it's Mm -hmm. very difficult to see that difference because all we can see is a cross-sectional variation. And there's not much of it because everybody goes to university, they all get a business degree and they're all taught the same thing. But I think the loss to social welfare is actually quite a bit more than is apparent by the specific firms that we're now observing struggling because of this. And even specific pension funds that are regretting having gone down this path. Oh, that's interesting that even, I guess you you brought that up earlier and I, I guess it didn't quite burrow its way into my brain there about the effect that it would have on pension funds because you kind of started with that a little bit. How exactly are the pension funds, you know, you know, are they just managing their money in such a way in terms of the way they invest? Is that how that's panning out? Most pension funds are run by someone who, like I'd say a union, there'll be somebody who actually is elected by the union or is hired by the union president to manage the pension funds. But that person doesn't actually manage the pension funds the way you normally think of it. That person acts as kind of an executor and they dole out parts of the pension fund to various companies that manage it. And BlackRock is a pretty well-known one and they are very, very, very heavy in the ESG and we're starting to see pension funds threatening to sue BlackRock if they don't get back to just trying to make the pension fund make as much money as possible. You know, before recently, before the last 18 months or so, the stock market was roaring along so well that no matter what you did, you were going to make money. So people couldn't really observe the counterfactual. But now that the stock market is foundering and has been for a year, all of a sudden, people who have been entrusted to make sure that pensioners or future pensioners will get what they were promised they're beginning to panic and say, no, wait a minute, we didn't make very much money. We actually lost a lot of money. And we even lost a lot of money compared to some other pension funds that are managed in a more traditional way. And they're finding out that this idea of investing to make the world a better place produces extremely weak behavioral guideposts and standards for behavior by the people who make decisions in the firm. What you really need is you need clarity. Clarity of objectives is what provides accountability. Accountability is what induces people to make decisions that are objectively, demonstrably in line with the objective you promised to pursue. And therefore, there is a clear barometer. So the bottom line is, when we buy your stock, you basically promised us to make the most money possible. We understand and hope that you will do that in a, in a way that is bounded by ethical behavior. No question about that. We don't want you to lie, cheat, and steal to make us money. But other than obeying those constraints on decent and moral behavior, we expect you to do your best to make us as rich as possible. And this is not selfish. And this does not reduce the amount of do-gooding in society. It actually increases it. Because when the firm doesn't get in the do-gooding game of corporate social responsibility and stakeholder theory and sticks to profits, profits will be higher than otherwise by construction. We know that's a simple logic at that point. 
And therefore, the owners of the firm will have that much more money to do their own philanthropy. And there's just simply no compelling moral, legal, or ethical argument to suggest that the owners of the firm are somehow in a worse position to decide what is worthy of philanthropic giving than the people the owners hired. And that's such a crucial point here because there's this almost manic mentality in our culture against this idea of profit. And we've alluded to that. You've, you've talked about this already, but I think it's kind of worthy to note here because connecting this then to the philanthropic objectives then of the individuals who are making the profits then like begins to help disassociate the problem of why does the corporation, why does the firm need to be philanthropic when the people who are earning the profits from being owners and participating in the running of the business can do that on their own. I mean, we have vehicles by which we can contribute monies in order to <laughs> do good in a way that is not typical of a business. We call those nonprofits. Like, I mean, this is what we do. Yeah, you have those, but even more to the point, the country that at least until very recently was the most willing to endorse the moral propriety of becoming rich and making a profit was the United States. Right. Once we're very, very focused on making money, people were very focused on making money. And the total amount of money given to charities and so forth per capita was and is highest in this country. Now, how could that possibly be? Well, if you're worried about making sure an awful lot of money goes towards doing charitable things or advancing social causes or protecting planet, you're going to want the most resources possible. It starts with resources. And when you have all these firms trying to be everything to everyone all at the same time, they're not going to be very effective at it. Yeah. But if they try to be one thing to one principal, that being the owner of the firm or the set of owners of the firm, they can be very, very good at that. And when everybody's doing that all at the same time, the total amount of money is orders of magnitude larger than it would otherwise be. And it's actually fairly easy for people who own these firms to take dividends that add to their income and give a lot of it away, which is not just a prediction. It's in fact what the data shows over a very long period of time. So this idea of demonizing profit is a great idea if you don't want to be held to the standard of having done that which, of course, people who lead in business don't. It's also a great idea if you are in the nonprofit charitable industry and you want to get money from donations and you can either try to do it by raising it by individual people, which is hard work, or you can snag an Anheuser-Busch and get, you know, 12 million at a pop. <laughs> You want to promulgate moral theories that make that job easier. And, and as you know, I'm sure you know, we have a cottage industry now of nonprofit organizations and non-government agencies out there now. A lot of people are employed in this way. And many of these organizations do good. There's no question about that. But many of them are of dubious value to society. Like, I'll agree with that. <laughs> yeah, ones that advocate for changes to policing practices that really amount to just not 
capturing criminals and putting them away anymore or releasing them as soon as you catch them. Yeah. Some of this stuff is really bad. And normal people know this, but normal people don't realize that when they endorse things like ESG and when they say, oh, I feel good because this company does ESG or I want to invest my money with this particular fund because they do ESG, they don't realize that they are actually funneling money to firms that in turn are making philanthropic gifts to organizations that do things that they completely disapprove of. Yeah. And so this clouding up of objectives allows for all of these kinds of things to happen, none of which anyone can defend. And the only reason why it happens is just people were just simply unaware. The better world is, hey, I got some money to invest. You make the biggest return you possibly can on this money. And I'm going to take some of that money because I'm a good person and I'll do some good stuff with it. And I'll decide what that'll be. I hired you to be my pension fund manager and that pension fund manager bought these shares and indirectly hired that CEO to make money. You're an expert at making money. You're not an expert at doing good. All you can do is just do good that's better for you because it gets you a bigger reward or just fits your personal preferences, but it's not your money. It's my preferences that matter. So I want you to do what you're supposed to do. I'll do what I'm supposed to do. And then when everybody has their roles clearly defined and their objectives are clear, then we all have standards that we have to live up to. And if we don't, people will make decisions and you'll end up losing your job. That's how you end up building an incredibly rich society like the one we have. It's not from not profit maximizing. It's from profit maximizing. And that's how we were able to sustain the most philanthropic giving in the world that the world has ever seen. Not when we had a whole bunch of firms that didn't maximize profits, but when we had a whole bunch of firms that did. Because the maximization of profits has nothing to do with the generosity of the people who own those firms and who now have that much more money to give away as they see fit. This kind of reminds me of the counter to the description of the 80s, for instance, is the decade of greed. Or was it the 90s or both? And yet, as you're noting, it was during this period where there was more philanthropic giving than has almost ever been seen in history. I mean, that kind of dovetails into what you're describing, right? Right. I mean, it's a very predictable outcome of what I described. And it happened. A very real thing. It's such a counter and a good salve or a a medicine to the rhetoric that we're hearing continually these days from know-nothings who seem to think that it is appropriate to abrogate you know, this idea of making money as a good thing. And then instead, well, that's just the bad thing to do. You shouldn't make money. You need to do good instead. Man, it just, it's so difficult sometimes for people to wrap their brains around the more appropriate way of thinking about it. What do you think we can do to kind of continue explaining even more directly, perhaps, why is it that, you know, E, S, and G values end up causing this type of harm? What examples can we bring to bear to help people to understand, like, kind of from that end, how it's a problem? And how then, on the other hand, if we continue this idea of just profit maximizing, that we will accomplish all of what we want and more? Great question. And of course, the big long answer is everybody <laughs> should teach business ethics the way I think it should be taught and then the world <laughs> will heal itself. I think that'll be good. They'll start there, but <laughs> yeah. 
at this point, when being interviewed on TV, you say, my website is blah, 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 you know, and you try to get people yeah. money. Um, <laughs> but I, I can give you actually some practical advice from the point of view of what you might say in a conversation with somebody who is on the other side of this issue, but say a thoughtful person. And the first phrase comes from the Bible, actually, of all places. Who but knew? <laughs> it, yeah, but it is an enduring kind of wisdom. And that is, you know, there's a time and a place for everything. Yep. And suppose you're a farmer and you love your family completely. You just don't try to have the birthday party from the tractor seat while you're plowing because it's time to plow. Okay. You'll do the birthday party later, right? So there's a time and a place for everything. Well, and to, to make a terrible joke, though, I mean, but my 10 year old really loves tractors. No, <laughs> oh. <laughs> 10 year olds have a way of ruining good examples. <laughs> yeah, they did. No, but I think the, the point is well put. Yeah. So does that mean that you don't love your kid? No, it means that you're plowing dirt right now. Like another example that I give, you know, if you're on a Christian cruise and all these people are the real deal, they're not phony Christians, they really do love each other and they really are all in and then they get shipwrecked and some people need to do this, some people need to do that. There's going to be choices being made by somebody over who picks coconuts, who gets water, who does this, who does that. You might have a competition to decide who does what. It seems like the fairest thing to do. And it's also most consistent with promoting the common good. You want the best coconut pickers picking coconuts, not the worst. <laughs> but that's competition. That doesn't seem very Christ-like. Well, no, there's a time and a place for everything. And when it comes to administering to someone who has some kind of need because of a problem, that's not the time for competition. But when it comes to figuring out who should do what for the common good is a perfectly fine place for competition as long as it's honest and, you know, within the bounds of ethical behavior. So there's a time and a place for everything. And, and you yeah, know, we get up and we should go to work and we should work really hard with the people we work with to enjoy and produce the greatest possible and most effective cooperation because we need to have stuff before we start fighting over how to divide it up. And that's what we do there. That's what that's for. And the best way to measure the effectiveness of that is to aim for and evaluate later in terms of the goal of profit maximization. That's what we do. That doesn't mean that 24 hours a day, that's all we do. In other contexts, you know, we have a bunch of money and we're able to buy everything we need for our family. And we feel like, you know, it'd be nice if we did some good with this money. Well, that's fine when it's your money. And yeah. <laughs> then there is genuine virtue in doing it. There's no virtue whatsoever in spending someone else's money and then taking credit for it. In fact, it's the opposite of virtue. It's, a, it's actually an underhanded thing to do. So there's a time and a place for everything. And before we start fussing about who gets what, we need to have a, something to divide up. And the way to have the most of something to divide up, which is the best position to be in, is to have a system that has the strongest possible incentives and clarity of accountability to put people to work in the most effective way possible. And so we go to work and we cooperate with other people in that context with an ethical bounds to do that. 
The other phrase that I would use, and this isn't biblical, but it's something that people used to say, but they never do anymore. <laughs> and that is, we all have a role to play. Okay, and yeah. We have different roles to play than each other, and we have different roles to play in different contexts. But it's okay to play the role of worker when you're working, to play the role of manager if you're a manager, to play the role of Knights of Columbus volunteer if you're trying to help out with raising money for a new park for the city or whatever. We have various roles to play, but this idea that somehow it's incumbent upon us to play almost all roles all at the same time that is obviously a con because that is the way in which you are, enable yourself to play musical chairs of accountability. Your job, well, I'm doing everything for everyone all the time. So you can always point to these other things that you've done and claim that somebody else hasn't done those things. So I just think those are two phrases that kind of allow you to reframe the debate. There's a time and a place for everything and firms should be all about creating value. Net increases in value. It just so happens that the proxy for the value of the value we create is the word profit. But the word profit doesn't have anything to do with being stingy or selfish or redistribution. It has to do with the proper objective if your goal is to maximize the practical value of cooperation, this thing that most people will readily concede is a good thing. Yeah, something I like to say about the concept of profit is that profit is a signal that you are serving somebody else well. If somebody's willing to give you a profit on a service or a good that you've produced, well, then doggone it, you've done something that they wanted you to do. Yeah, unless you can show that there is a market failure and we have whole theory and economics about that and that it's legit, but unless you can show there's some kind of market failure problem at work, and unless you can show that the people involved are behaving in some immoral or unethical way, mm -hmm. when they seek to maximize profit, they are basically doing exactly the same thing that an omniscient, benevolent social dictator would choose. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can show this mathematically. It's just, this is not, I'm not just, this isn't just rhetoric. I mean, I can't show it mathematically on a podcast. Well, yeah, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's out there. <laughs> well, I show my students this at the yeah, undergraduate sure. level and graduate level. It can be done. There is a strict alignment. Now, there are circumstances where this isn't true. National defense, it's not true. Pollution, it's not true. There are things like that. But for the vast majority of things that firms produce and the vast majority of things that people consume, those issues are usually either non-existent or very small. And profit-maximizing behavior, as long as it's within the guardrails of ethical behavior, is how you personally best contribute to the common good. Well, David, this has been really fascinating. And before we kind of close out, I'd like to you know, ask you kind of one other question and that will hopefully be a help to those who are listening and observing what's going on in our society. And that's, what would be your perhaps kind of last words of practical advice of kind of what to watch out for among rhetoric, among, you know, all the stuff that we see from corpse and, and whatnot that would signal that there's something wrong 
perhaps this is a little overly broad, but just kind of like, how should we increase or improve our observational capacity to begin to detect where things are going off the rails in our present society? Well, that's actually a pretty easy question and a pretty easy thing to achieve (laughs) because I would say in about 95% of cases, the prevailing wisdom in the zeitgeist of the day is off base. And it does concede a lot of these premises without a whole lot of thought. So the real question isn't how can you recognize uh, failure to grasp all of this correctly, because it's just about certain that's what's happening. I think the more important thing is being able to articulate to people why there's a time and a place for everything. And within the context of a firm that exists in a free market society, as long as it's operating within ethical bounds, the best way it can promote social welfare is to maximize its profit without apology, because that's the best way to keep performance clear, keep the objectives about which performance is measured clear, and therefore it maximizes efficiency. You have the least waste. If you can't maximize, then you have no practical means of being efficient. If you're not efficient, by definition, you have waste. We don't want waste. We want to squeeze the most happiness or society we possibly can out of the resources we have. We don't want to waste any of it. And the maximization of profit is one of the most important means by which we do that. Awesome. Well, Dr. Rose, I'm so pleased that we were able to have this conversation. I hope that people kind of garner a lot of learnings out of this conversation. And if people want to go and learn a little bit more about you and about your books and whatnot, do you have any place you'd like to direct them that they can learn even more about this? Actually, no. I don't have a website <laughs> like that. I've been told to do this many, many times, especially by my publishers. But I will, <laughs> I will soon. I will soon have a presence at Common Sense Society. And they're going to put all that up and force me to do this, <laughs> which I think is prudent, not just for me, but for them. And so that is coming soon. In any case, it wouldn't hurt anybody to go to Common Sense Society anyway. It's a neat group. And like I said, soon that material will be there for me. Okay, so we'll definitely put it in our show notes here to check the Common Sense Society as another means of learning about the types of things that you do and whatnot. And of course, if you happen to be going to the University of Missouri-St. Louis, I can't recommend Dr. Rose enough as uh, just make sure you take his business ethics course, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That would be great, except I'm not allowed, well, allowed to teach business ethics, but it's impossible for me to do it because... Oh, well, isn't it ironic? But you are an active professor in economics and whatnot, so I guess that's, it, it is really cool. Yeah, but. a lot of this ground gets covered in, <laughs> in any classes that I teach. Awesome. Well, once again, Dr. Rose, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right, so... That is our episode for today. We hope that you've enjoyed this and we look forward to seeing you next time. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.